Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 25. John chapter 7, verse 25. The setting of John 7 is in the city of Jerusalem during the festival of tabernacles, which was sometimes called the festival of booths. This festival was one of the three major religious feasts during the Jewish religious calendar year, along with Passover and Pentecost. And so there was a huge crowd of Jews, not only from Jerusalem and surrounding Judea, but there were Jews at this feast from all over the known world of that day, taking part in this celebration and this feast. It was a celebration of God's provision for the nation of Israel during their time in the wilderness between their slavery in Egypt and before their occupying the promised land in Canaan. And maybe you remember that God had miraculously provided for these people's ancestors by giving them water from a rock and by sending them down manna from heaven. During this festival week, there would have been a great spirit of nationalism, of ethnic pride, of Jewish pride. Along with that, it was a time of messianic fervor, meaning that their anticipation and expectation of the Messiah was at a, a, a high time, a high tide. They were really looking for Him. They were wanting their Messiah to come and deliver them from the oppression of Rome and make them the prominent people that they had always wanted to be and expected to be. During this festival, Jesus was the major topic of conversation. The crowd was talking about Jesus. And they talked about the identity of Jesus. They debated among themselves who Jesus was. The religious leaders were talking about Jesus too. But they were talking about His location. His whereabouts. So they could find Him and make good on their conspiracy to kill Him. Jesus didn't come until after the festival had started, unlike what His brothers had urged Him to do. They were giving Him ministry advice, you remember back at the beginning of chapter 7, but intentionally operating not on their time, but God's time. He came secretly. And He didn't make a public appearance until the feast was over halfway through. And when He did make this public appearance, it was in the temple where He began to teach. And like He had taught before, 
his teaching at this time probably had to do with how he was the fulfillment of their scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. That he was their promised divine Messiah who had been sent by God from heaven to deliver his people. But it's also important to note that like he had before, Jesus was most likely focusing on their need for salvation from sin, from their own sin, not salvation from Rome. This was their primary need, their sin, the salvation of their souls. And so it was the primary message of Jesus. It's our primary need, right? Our sin, the very salvation of our souls. And so it remains the primary message in the Word of Christ. That's the setting of John 7. The subject of John 7, as we've already seen, is responding to Jesus. The claims that Jesus made, the teaching that Jesus did, they demand a response. And what's more than that, the claims of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus cause people to respond. Everyone ultimately responds to the question or to these questions, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Savior? Is Jesus the hope of the world? Is Jesus Lord? We've already talked about the response of rejection in three sermons from the first 24 verses of this chapter. And in that first half of John chapter 7, we have seen the various forms that rejecting Jesus can take. Think back with me for a moment. We have seen that rejecting Jesus can take the form of unbelief. We have seen that rejecting Jesus can take the form of hatred. We have seen that rejecting Jesus can take the form of opinions. And we have seen that rejecting Jesus can take the form of conspiracy. This morning, while not denying what I've already emphasized in the previous three messages that Ultimately, the only two responses to Jesus are to receive Him or to reject Him. I'm going to show you four ways that people might respond to Jesus immediately, initially. Four ways that people might respond to Jesus or might be responding to Jesus currently, right now. And the first one that people respond to Jesus is with doubt. One of the ways that people respond to Jesus then and now is with doubt. Look at verses 25 through 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem. Now that phrase indicates that these aren't the foreign Jews that have made their way to Jerusalem 
for the festival, but these are the home folk. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they want to kill? The Jews that had made their way to Jerusalem from foreign countries for this festival may not have been aware of the conspiracy on the part of the Jewish religious leaders to kill Jesus. But the residents of Jerusalem were very aware that this conspiracy existed. And their conversation about Jesus was, wasn't this the man the religious leaders want to kill. They bring this up in verse 26 by saying, yet look, He's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to Him. You see, they're shocked. They're not shocked at the conspiracy. They're not shocked by the appearance or the teaching of Jesus. But they are shocked that the religious leaders who have already made it very clear that they want to kill Jesus are not doing anything about His public preaching. That they're letting Him do it. And so they reason at the end of verse 26, can it be true that the authorities know that He's the Messiah? That was a rumor that was going around. That they're not doing anything about Jesus' preaching because some of them are now convinced that He's the Messiah. Verse 27, the people of Jerusalem then say, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where He's from. So you see, they are responding to Jesus with doubt, aren't they? They would yield the point that it was possible that Jesus was the Messiah, but it wasn't very probable that Jesus was the Messiah. They're right there in the response of doubt. But I do want you to note what caused their doubt. Wrong thinking. Error on their part. We could even say that what caused their doubt was ignorance. Because their thinking goes something like this. He sure sounds like the Messiah. He looks like the Messiah. Does things like the Messiah will do. But we know where He's from. And they believed this truth that you wouldn't know where the Messiah was from. That you may know where He was born, but He'd just appear out of nowhere and deliver the people. And so they doubted their doubts caused by their wrong thinking and ignorance. You need to know, we need to know, that wrong thinking, erroneous thinking, Ignorance is still a cause of much doubt. Most of the doubts that people have about Christ, if not all of them, are caused by this type of wrong thinking. And we must know about ourselves as people that because of our sin 
nature, because of the sin within us, we are easily confused. We are easily deterred from believing on Jesus. John Calvin put it this way. We are all experts at constructing stumbling blocks for not to believe on Jesus. And then you add to it that we are easily deceived. Deceived by Satan himself, who if we don't construct the stumbling blocks, then he will provide the stumbling blocks for us that will keep us from believing on Christ. And if we were nearly as wise as what we thought we were, we would recognize that doubt has always been a scheme of Satan to keep people from believing on Christ. Doubt doesn't show intelligence on your part. It shows deception on your part. It shows that you're a tool of Satan. A product of Satan's work without even knowing it. The Bible says that we aren't unaware of the schemes of Satan. That he is a schemer. We should know what his offensive strategy is. And it is to create doubt. All doubt originates in him. Now look at verse 41 and verse 42. Others said this is the Messiah, but some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Can you detect their noses being stuck straight up to the heavens as they said that? The Messiah won't come from Galilee, will he? The Messiah won't come from the south, will he? Nothing good can come from Alabama, can it? Sort of the thinking here. He won't come from Galilee, will he? Doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? Well, absolutely yes, it does. It says both of those things in the Old Testament. That the promised Messiah would be a descendant of David, a king likened to David, but even greater than kingdom. His kingdom would have no end. And it says about this Messiah in the book of Micah, that uh, He would be born in the city of Jerusalem. The least of the cities, the least of the regions of Judea would be honored by God with producing physically the promised Messiah. So what you have here in these two verses is more doubt. More doubt that's caused by wrong thinking, that's caused by erroneous thinking, that's caused by ignorance. On the part of the people who are doubting. Ignorance of the things of God and the Word of God is dangerous. There, there are lots of things out there that are dangerous. And I know that we're warned of them often. Reminded of their dangers often. But I am not speaking... Uh, in hyperbole when I say 
that the most dangerous thing that there is, is ignorance of God. Ignorance of the ways of God. Ignorance of the Word of God. It's the most dangerous condition. The most dangerous enemy that's out there. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. People die because they don't know. And it's not merely talking about physical death here. People perish eternally because of a lack of knowledge. So whatever stream there is out there among what would be called Christianity that seeks to undermine or diminish the importance of knowing God and knowing the Word of God, we can be absolutely certain that it's not of God. God wants us to know. That's why He's revealed Himself to us through words, through propositions, through commands through truth in His Word. Proverbs 29.18 says, Without vision, the people perish. I've been guilty of this, and maybe you have as well, and we've heard others be guilty of it as well. Misuse that proverb. And they'll use it something like this. If we don't have a, a vision... For where we're going in the future, then we're going to perish. And there may be some truth to that. But the word vision doesn't refer to our vision there. The vision that it speaks of is revelation. Without revelation, without a word from God, the people perish. Is the point of Proverbs 29.18. This is exactly what happened with Eve and in turn with Adam. Doubt was created in their minds by the wrong thinking and the ignorance that Satan helped to further. And just like it happened with Eve and Adam, it's been happening that way since then to our day. So you know a question that we've got to ask is how... I mean, this is a serious question, folks. How can I guard myself against this ignorance that will kill me or destroy me? How can I protect myself? How can I protect my family? How can we protect our church from this destructive, wrong thinking? From this ignorance that if not unchecked leads to hell. How can we help ourselves against this incredible foe? And the answer is with right thinking. And we find all of that right thinking in the Word of God that we call the Bible. 
We're always to be going to the Word of God and placing our minds and our knowledge or what we think we know beneath the authority of God's Word and having our thinking and our view of life and God and people and salvation and eternity and the world molded and shaped by what God says. And I feel that I need to add this. What God says is not what you think He's saying to you in your mind. We can be much more definitive about what God says than that. It's why we have this book called the Bible. We know that He has said this. It has stood the test of time. Invest your time then in the Word of God and get to know God and His way and His Son from His very words. Sit under the right teaching and preaching of the Word of God that will come from the Word of God. That will not merely use the Word of God as a a, a diving board to get off into what the preacher or teacher really wanted to talk with about anyway. But will actually base the teaching and the preaching on what the Word says. Find yourself around people that you can have conversations about the things of God with. People who are biblical in their thinking. Not personal in their thinking. Not worldly in their thinking. Not a a majority opinion in their thinking. But people whose thinking is solely dictated by what does the Word say? This is what Scripture alone means. That our authority is the Word of God. That's how we guard ourselves. That's how we protect ourselves. You need to be studying it yourself. And don't give me this garbage that you can't understand it. You understand things far more complicated than the Word of God. Your lack of understanding most likely results from your lack of having spent time with God. Now, that doesn't explain all of our lack. Look, I'm just like you. I'm not pointing a finger at you. Hey, there are parts I read in the Bible, and I'm like, what? Have you read Ezekiel lately? For the most part, I have no clue what it's talking about. But I get this from it. Hey, God is great. And He is our hope. He's provided salvation through His promised Messiah. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17 says about the sacred Scriptures that they are able to give you wisdom. Listen to that. They are able... To give you wisdom. For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you protect yourself from that wrong thinking. 
It goes on to say that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's been breathed out by God. It's from the very mind of God. Every word, every thought, every book breathed through the very Spirit of God into the human authors that wrote it down and recorded and preserved it for us. It's profitable, it says, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. You see how it will guard you from that dangerous ignorance? It's profitable for all these things, it says, so that the man or the woman or the boy or the girl of God may be complete, may be perfectly equipped, not ignorant. Not held back by wrong, erroneous thinking. Perfectly complete for doing whatever work God would have us to do. Now I can detect about this point that I'm not going to get nearly as far in this message as I thought. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to stay slowed down. And we're going to finish off this this first response that people have to Jesus at least. These people responded to Jesus with doubt. Do you see that? Can you see their doubt? They've thought about it, but they've come to the conclusion based on their ignorant thinking, their lack of knowledge that Jesus most probably is not who He says He is. Now I want you to look at Jesus' response to their doubt. Verse 28. As He was teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, You know Me, And you know where I'm from. Now he acknowledges that there is some truth to what they've said about the Messiah and His origin. He says, you know me. You know where I'm from. You know that I'm a Galilean. You may be familiar with who my family is. But just about the time that we think we know Jesus and really get puffed up in that, He reminds us that we don't know Him nearly as well as we think we do. And He also will make the point here that there are people who think they know Him, and even people who think they know God, who don't know Him at all. So Jesus says, you know me and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own. You don't know everything about me. You don't know all that there is to know about my origins, what he's saying. You you think I'm merely from Galilee. You don't realize I am from Bethlehem. I am from the line of David. But he's getting it more here. Jesus is, is, is really saying, 
You don't understand that my origin wasn't in Bethlehem. So if you, you really want to talk about where my home is, it's not Bethlehem and it's not Galilee. He says, I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true and therefore I'm true. You can believe me, he's saying, when I say these things about who I am. Because the one I come through from is true. You don't know Him. We read over that. We don't think too much about it. But there is literally... Not one thing that Jesus could have said to the Jews that would have been more offensive and startling to them than these words. Do you know what the Jews took the most pride in above all things? We know God. And none of the other peoples do. We know God. And they were puffed up in their knowledge of God. They had bragged on their knowledge of God, made fun of those without knowledge of God for hundreds of years. And here comes Jesus and He says, you don't know God. If that could be said of the Jews of Jesus' day and even of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, is it a stretch for me to suggest that it could be said about some people in the church today? I mean, is that too far out there? That it's beyond the realm of possibility? That there are people who think they know God and have thought they know God for years and have been real inwardly arrogant about having known God and the truth is that they don't know God. They may know some things about God. About the time that we get to feeling sporty about our knowing God, you come across a passage like Paul writes in his writings where he says what a wonderful thing it is to know God and then he qualifies it by saying, or maybe I should say, to be known by God. Now, I, I know who the president is, but he doesn't have a clue who I am. I know Nick Saban and Gus Malzahn, but that's not real impressive. So do all of you. Now, what would be impressive is if we were walking down the street and one of them said, Hey, Michael, what's up? I mean, if, if you were standing by me, what would you? Some of you go, Well, how about that? Now, some of you wouldn't matter at all, but you just don't know anyway. Now, that's not going to happen. When he says, Paul, that he has said that it's more important to say that God knows us, he's not denying that Paul knows about everybody, or, or God knows about everybody, certainly does. But he's talking about an intimate knowledge, right? As a friend. There are lots of people who would claim friendship with God that God Himself would not count them as a friend. 
that He doesn't know them. And I, I pray, I earnestly pray that this isn't the case for you. I, I pray that none of us would fall into this category of thinking that we know God when nothing could be further from the truth. Now, as to what made it very clear that they didn't know God, here's what did it. They didn't receive Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus. If you don't know Christ, you don't know God. If you don't receive the very one that God has sent for the salvation of people's souls, you don't know God. And God doesn't know you. The only way to know God, to know the Father, is through the Son. It's the point that He makes here in verse 29. I know Him because I am from Him and I have been sent by Him. And the only means that we have of knowing God, the invisible God, the God of heaven, the God of creation, the only means through which we have of knowing Him is to acknowledge and receive through faith the One that He has sent, who before He came here was with God. Always going all the way back to eternity and was glorified with the very glory of God just as the glory of the Father by all of the hosts of heaven like the Father Himself. Rather than being a cause for doubt, the origin of Jesus should erase whatever doubts people have. You see what was going on here? The origin of Jesus is what had them in all that doubt. But the origin of Jesus is what should have removed their doubt. Because they were arguing about His wrong place of origin. He wasn't just from Bethlehem or Galilee. He was from heaven. He was from God. He was the anointed one of God. It's the same thing with the mission of Jesus. The very fact that He and He alone has been sent by the Father to save His people should erase whatever doubt there is in our minds. And yet, doubt is the way that some people respond to Jesus. Maybe you. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you... Responding to Jesus with doubt. You just be honest with yourself for a moment. Let God's Spirit search you. Let the Word of God divide between joints and bones and marrow within you. And you evaluate yourself in light of this question. Am I responding to Jesus with doubt? Do you have doubts about Christ? Just remember that doubt is always caused by wrong thinking.
Doubt's always caused by ignorance. Our doubt is the product of what we don't know yet. And Christian brother or sister, did you know that can even be the case for us? Look, I'm speaking this morning of doubt in the context of unbelief because these were unbelievers who were doing it. But can I get a witness from the congregation, from a brother or sister or brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have doubts sometimes too? You ever doubted God? The goodness of God? The plan of God? The mercy, the grace of God, the timing of God. Sure we have. Sure we have. You know what causes that doubt? Our ignorance. In that moment, we just don't know God like we ought to. Or we just start trusting in what we know about God like we ought to. Our fears and our doubts have become greater than our knowledge. We're letting our emotions override our minds. Also, for those of us who doubt, for the unbeliever or the believer... Remember that it's the work of Satan. Do you want to let Satan get the best of you? How many of you like to win? I mean, listen, I'll tell you how much I like to win. I hate losing a whole lot more than I like winning. I never could enjoy the victories for very long because I was focused on whatever was coming next and hoping we didn't lose that one. If you're in doubt, you are losing. You're losing. Satan is defeating you. But you don't have to lose. Recognize it for what it is. A scheme of Satan. And immerse yourself in the Word of God. And be reminded of the greatness of God and the goodness of God. And the wisdom of God. Be reminded that God is working all things for our good. That He's working for His magnification and His glorification. And see if doubt in your life isn't removed. For those of you who have yet to come to Christ through turning from your sins and believing on Him to save you. For those of you who have yet to be born again by the miraculous work of the Spirit of God, I also want you to remember that if this doubt caused by ignorance is not overcome in your life, you are on a one-way street to hell and to destruction. The wrath of God. The anger of God. Some people 
respond to Jesus with doubt. That's one way. Go back to Psalm 2 that I read before I prayed this morning. God would not have us to respond with a doubt. He would have us to respond by honoring the Son, by paying homage to the Son, because in the Son there is a refuge from God's wrath against our sin. And so I would tell you this morning, If you know that you've never come to Christ, or if you have questions about whether you have come to Christ or not, today, today is the day of salvation. The opportunity may not be here much longer. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Come to Jesus, believe on Him, and take shelter in Him from your doubts, from every other sinful response to you have. The only right way to be responding to Jesus is in faith and continued faith. And for those of you who don't have it, I pray that God would work a miracle in your heart and give it to you. And for those of us who do, I pray that God would keep working. And you know, I do more than pray. I trust that God who has started the good work in us will be faithful to complete it until that day when Jesus comes again. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?